You're listening to a premium preview episode of Flux Pod. My name is Matthew Perpetua. Guest in this episode is Abraham Reisman. He has a new book out called True Believer. It is a biography of Marvel's Stan Lee. Uh, you know, in the the larger episode the, for the, on the Patreon, we'll get into the book and Stan Lee and the process of making it and Marvel. You know, all of all things related to that. And uh, we also talk a lot about music, as this is ostensibly a music podcast. And uh, we talk about uh, Kiki and Herb as being kind of crucial to part of Abe's coming out experience as a bisexual man. And we'll talk about Godspeed, Black Emperor. But in this chunk, we're going to talk about Stephen Malkmus and Beck and uh, the masculinity the, that, that the, or lack thereof that kind of comes through in their work. And uh, yeah, I hope you enjoy it. This is uh, was a really fun part of the conversation. I enjoyed the whole thing, but you know, this part, I think we really got something kind of cool. Um, you want to hear the full episode, you want to hit up Patreon slash Flux blog. Uh, well, with that in mind, and kind of knowing that you have an interest in music, but have not really written a lot about music through your career, like, are there any figures that you would be interested in writing about in the way they've written? You've written about Stanley, and you're writing about Vince McMahon. Ooh, that's a good question. Figures. You can manifest this now. Yeah, I can manifest this into reality. I'm trying to think of who I'm really passionate about, who you could fill a whole book with. Um, you know, uh, 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 yeah, I mean, and it's hard to think of. I and mean, there are definitely figures through music history who have a similar role that a, that a Lee or a McMahon would have as being sure. like this kind of, you know, you think about uh, like Barry Gordy, for example. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know if you have an investment in that particularly. Uh, well, I, I mean, I, I, what I know about Barry Gordy, I know from people who have written a lot about him. So I feel like, I mean, I don't know, maybe maybe he's not as charted as you'd think, but it feels like a lot of the really big figures in music, and again, this is not me speaking as an expert, it feels like a lot of them have already been documented. But I mean, for me, and I'm not just saying this because I'm on your podcast, but the person I'd probably most love to at least profile, I don't know if he would fill a whole book, is um is uh, Stephen Malkmus? I mean, I I grew up absolutely adoring Pavement. I mean, in high school, Pavement meant everything to me. I was a little behind the curve. The first album that I got was their last album, and it was like a few months before they broke up. Um, but I then spent the subsequent years post breakup just obsessing over them and obsessing over Malkmus uh, and his solo work. I sort of fell off with it after a number of years. But those first two post Pavement albums that he put out. Um, just mean a great deal to me. And I think he's a fascinating character and very much both a product of and definer of the late 80s into the 90s, which was a period when I was paying a lot of attention to music. Um, so, you know, there was that pavement book that got written a million years ago, but it was just sort of assembled from like profiles that had already been written, I think. Um, yeah. my, my, my friend, uh, Brian Charles also did the 33 and a third book about Wowie's out. Oh yes. Uh, which I love. I, I have that on my shelf. Yeah. Uh, remember I talked to him a little while ago and he mentioned like that the book was translated into Chinese. It's like one of like five <gasps> or six books in that line that was translated into what? Chinese. I can't remember ooh, it was Mandarin or what, but it was. Why? Apparently there is a market in China for pavement. I had no, I had idea. no idea. That is so interesting. I, I, I mean, there, I, I, 
that's a band that I would love at some point to have the opportunity to write at length about. Um, it hasn't, I don't know, for whatever reason, it hasn't happened yet. The town that I was born, is a truck. It got stuck in the barn. The driver, but tell him I need help. I need release. Sand in the boat. All the rose covered float. She is the queen of cancel Casadina. What do you feel like your angle on it is? On pavement? Oh God, I'd have to. What? Um, I guess it's it's something about the power and limits of irony and distance. You know, I mean, there's something really beautiful in um, the way Malcolmus could toy with a listener and make you feel connected to the music while at the same time totally, you know alienated by the fact that the the singer seems so disinterested in like appealing to you but at the same time obviously it's a pose that is appealing so yeah. you and feel he, all and, these- he, and also like he does push against it all through his career oh of, yeah you are the parts where he's being very direct earnest how he feels or like oh yeah know, something that's very personal but it's always kind of couched or, or hidden in this thing like i, I, I yep. pretty recently wrote uh, about like a week of Love's blog post about uh, Malcolm's solo songs from mm. the first seven solo records. God, is he, uh, how many does he have now? Records. And the thing that, you know, in pretty much all of them that I wrote about, you're kind of running into like the, the part that's really personal, that's surrounded by just interesting language that's just there for its own sake. Yeah. You know, uh, or, or the musical ideas that, you know, some of it's in quotes and some of it's just like something sure. that's very, that flows very naturally out but of But like, them. right. I mean, you listen to one of the, the cla- you know, any number of classic albums that he put together, uh, either with Pavement or the Jicks or on his own. And yeah, you always have these songs within the larger tapestry that are, I mean, you, you think of, um, you know, on the first solo record, you have like, you know, goofy stuff like Jojo's jacket where he's like riffing on Yul Brynner and, you know, you've got, that's also the song where he's like really saying like how happy is to be free of pavement. Well, yeah, that too. But, but I was thinking more like, like, it's like three things at once. And like, Oh yeah. That that song also begins and ends with quotations. That's a good point. You're right. He quotes Dylan at the end. You're right. I hadn't thought about that, but it's bookended. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, but then you like, uh, you know, on that same album, you have like, you know, Church on White, you know, which is like a, a devastatingly emotional song. Um, yeah, that's, that's about one of the, his friend that was a junkie. I can't remember who. It yeah, was. I can't remember who yeah. it was, but it's it was like either a dead or a junkie friend of his, and I can't remember the story behind it. But whatever the story, it's 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 something that's so immediate when you listen to it. Uh, even though even in that song, the lyrics are kind of uh, you know elusive, the music itself and the way he could take 
little, the thing that always gets me is even in a song where most of the lyrics are all just cryptic and, and maybe just word jazz that he made up that day, there'll always be one or two lines that you isolate and, you know, you know, in church on white, for example, you know, it's, it's kind of, you know, carry on, it's a marathon, take me off the list. I don't want to be missed. Like, that's all interesting. It's kind of out there, but then, you know, in the chorus, it's like, all you ever wanted was everything plus everything. And the truth, I never told you half a lie. Like yeah. that's, it's so, oh, that's devastating. Like, it's and devastating. We the parts when you haunt your heart and when enough's enough, do the fakers drop out? Promise me you will always be too awake to be famous, too wide to be safe. But all you really wanted was everything, plus everything. And the truth I only poured you half a feel like that, like the thing you're describing is like something that really connects like uh, a majority of my favorite artists where there is this tendency to kind of you know put these very personal things amidst things that are just more uh poetic or more abstracted and i feel like in some i think there's maybe for me two things there one is like i feel like this is my own inclination as a human being and mm. two I feel like it's a very honest understanding of what music is. Music is an abstract art form. And I, I can be really put off by artists who want it to not be. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I, I agree. It's it's a really hard balance to strike. And, you know, Pavement was, and Malkmus, but especially back in the Pavement era, it was all about, I mean, that was, that was what, uh, you know, Alex Ross wrote about them when he wrote about Bright in the Corners. It was all about like the frustration and, and joy of trying to figure out what the hell these songs are about and whether they're about anything and whether you're kind of getting conned by Malkmus on some level, where it's like yeah. you're really emotionally connecting with these songs that actually have no deeper meaning. And then it's like death of the author. And it, right. This well, is, I this is what, I feel like yeah. if you if approach him like that, you kind of have to approach everyone like that. And then like popular right. music falls apart because popular music is really built around uh, I mean, oh, I mean, a lot of it's about emotional manipulation in, in sure. an artful way, and sometimes it's like you know nonsense, and nonsense is, is just kind of inherent to music. Like, it doesn't really matter what kind of music; it's like because it's musicality. Absolutely. Well, I mean, the other artist that meant a lot to me growing up, contemporary, like at the same time, the was was Beck, who similarly is all about you know word jazz and weirdness and ideas, and then occasionally will have these moments when it just is very immediate. Um, and that the those... thing with him though, is he kind of tends to like split his career into these two poles. He doesn't have it mingle as much as like a Malkmus does. Or, That's a good point. Like, does. Yeah. It's like, like you have a mutations, which is very personal or a sea change was very personal. And then, although I, I would the argue most recent one is extremely personal record. I see that one is really like a, that, what is that record called? Uh, uh Oh God. What's, um, it's oh, got that cover with him with the car. I, I have I've fallen off with Beck in general. Right, hyperspace. Right, yeah. But that one is definitely like uh, his divorce record and his kind of getting out of Scientology sure. record. The, both of those things are kind of the same thing for him. Yeah, um, yeah. I got I got to listen to that. You're 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 making a, I, I the last Beck song I really fell in love with, and I still freaking love it is um uh that 15 minute long jam he put together in 2013. I won't be long. Which oh, yeah. 
Yeah. It's great. It's like, I, I've listened to that song a million and a half times and I hadn't really been into a Beck song since like, you know, like really into it in that way since like, you know, sea change, maybe, maybe a couple of things on the information, but like, um, you know, once, once you get past a certain age with an artist, you start to feel like, well, was my enjoyment of that artist just cause I was immature, you know, or maybe I was really onto something. It starts to accumulate a lot of baggage cause you're remembering your youth and that can be wonderful. And it can also be really awful. Um, and so, you know, Beck is somebody I haven't thought about a ton in recent years, but he's somebody else who, I mean, he gets, he's been profiled a little bit more recently, but he's somebody else I would love to someday profile or like maybe even I write feel a like book about. He has a more interesting story than Malcolmus does because Malcolmus is ultimately a pretty normal guy. And that's kind of yeah, the, one that's of the things that becomes striking about him is how totally normal he is. Like the most, the most abnormal thing about him is that he has this level of off the cuff confidence that it feels superhuman. And I think like one of the things that's always attracted me to him and what's always fascinated about him, what's made him kind of an aspirational figure is like, God, I wish I could be more like that. You know? Yeah. Oh, totally. Walk around so comfortable in your skin, so comfortable in your talent and your like where it just seems like he walks through the world with a minimum level of neuroses. And, you know, I think (laughs) as you get to the more recent records, like he is more forthcoming about Mm -hmm. those, about having neuroses and things like that. So it could almost be like striking. Uh, That's interesting. Yeah. But you are right that Beck, I mean, Beck's had a very interesting, weird life. I I, I mean, a lot of it, I born into Scientology with. Right. Exactly. He's born. Yeah. Him itself is fascinating. Him, him and Neil Gaiman, the the two cultural icons who were born into Scientology families and have had a very complicated relationship with Scientology since then. Um, You know, I, 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 and, and well, I mean, not only that, but he's, he's Jewish too. I mean, he is and he isn't, but like similarly to Stan, like he, he has that Jewish background, although it's not something he's really embraced a whole lot. It, it's something that I'm sure if I were to like actually dig deep, I would find the ways in which his family and maybe the Jewishness of his family and the idiosyncratic nature of what, you know, Jewishness can be culturally has maybe influenced. I mean, you're making me realize as I'm talking about it more, I, I really should pitch a Beck thing at some point. I, I, he's, you know, he, maybe I mean, he's been already written about, but it, it well, would be, has, but I feel like, I mean, I've been attracted to writing about Beck in probably the past, like five to six years, something like that. Mm-hmm. Like, every, because Every time I approach Beck, like it's always kind of coming down to the question of who the hell are you? Yeah. Like, yeah. Because so much of his music, like there's a void at the center of it, which I think is yeah. intentional or like maybe not like uh, intentional in the sense that, you know, that is the point of the art. But I feel like it's something that he can't help but project. Like, I think that uh, my, my impression of him is that there is this part of him where he is not completely sure of who he is. Like sure. there's lots of things that are very settled about him. Like he is like, like that, the, just the, the, the facts of his life of being, he's a mm-hmm. studio rat. He's constantly making music. He's constantly working on stuff. He, you know, like he is a true obsessive musician and he's a true musician. You know, he's like, Oh yeah. You know, if you, if you listen to other musicians who've worked with him talk about him, it's always an awe. Like, like Pharrell Williams is an awe of him. You know, it's right. like, yeah, no, I mean, I I remember um, finding him utterly fascinating and aspirational because as as a young person, because he could be anything. I mean, and that's 
at least, you know, for me, and maybe it's growing up as a postmodern subject in the 90s, it felt like for everybody, your identity was sort of unstable and to put on, you know, yeah. and maybe and that's it, true I all mean, the time. I but that, I think that is like the topic of his 90s material, like the certainly like uh, the Mellow Gold, Old Delay, and especially Midnight Vultures. Midnight Vultures I, yeah. To me, Midnight Vultures is a record that's about, you know, masculine identities and trying to yes. pull together masculine identities and like try them on. And every single one of them is a farce. No, oh, like, totally. There's like no way to approach masculine identity that does not become farce. I think no. that is like the point of that record. You're, you're giving it's me chills. You're giving, yeah, you're giving me chills. Cause that's exactly, I mean, it's my favorite of his records and I've, I've, you know, listened to it ad infinitum and yeah, I mean, it, it is this, I was listening to it in 1999 when it came out, which means I was, you know, 14, 14. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the period when you're starting to think about if you are a, a, a lad becoming a man, you're starting to think about, well, what am I going to be when I grow up? And what does it mean to be masculine? Especially if you're somebody like me, who was like a closeted bisexual, who was extremely effeminate to the point where like, you know, I was constantly bullied. I mean, I, it was hearing this guy who was, could be very feminine, could be in that sort of, you yeah. know, androgynous prince mold. But, but the world could... is like so overtly cool. And he's also like yeah. really beautiful, especially that. Oh, he's gorgeous. He, yeah. He was just like a, a doll of a man. Yeah. Like, and just seemed so prince of a doll, you know, and he was unthreatening. I mean, it was it was the opposite of, you know, at the same time, you get artists like who are also doing artifice like Marilyn Manson, you know, who, you know, is a whole terrible figure in a lot of ways. But like, you know, you have people who are meditating on identity and trying to construct these things. But they part of what they're trying to do is to be intimidating or 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 scary or whatever. And Beck was never interested in that uh, musically. I mean, he well, I take that back. He could do songs that were very scary and weird. But as time went on, it he became less interested in that and more interested in, as you say, kind of figuring out, well, what are the ways that people pretend to be men? And what does that mean? And you get, you know, some of what we're talking about with the little lines in the middle of everything else. You know, I think about in uh, Midnight Vultures, it, you you get these little scattered things about being a dude, like, you know, tell me what's your zip code, baby. Have you ever let a cowboy sit in your lap? You know, I'm, like I'm a full grown man. I'm not afraid. To I'm cry. not afraid to cry. The, the, the recurring yeah. line, the, the bookends of the of the whole whole project. I mean, um, it's, it's so great because like that is a moment of, uh, you know, sentimentality and vulnerability. But it's also like this very like stage managed version of it. ago and was like i know every lyric on here i ever know every note and it's not just that it's comfort food i still find new stuff every time i listen to it yeah um, I, mean, I feel like yeah. the world is like starting to catch up to where that record is like intellectually <laughs> because yeah because i i think about this a lot where there's just a lot of things where masculinity is not as thought through the way 
femininity has been. And because, mm. you know, we have now many generations of feminist writers who have been mm-hmm. chewing this over for years, but there's not really as much of an equivalent for masculinity. Like masculinity no. can be written through in the context of feminism and will be written through the context of other things, but not in this way where it's just like not even judgmental. It's just like, what is this thing? I, like, I, totally. And I, like, and I, I feel like yeah. there's just no way society can really progress until no. you oh, really, God. like seriously God. think that through. Ugh. That's probably like generations out if we're lucky. I know. No, you're completely right. I mean, I, for me, you know, to get into my like broader life story, I didn't know shit about the world or myself until I started sleeping with men and like interacting on an intimate level with, with queer men. I mean, I was closeted until I was like 31, uh, like right after my 31st birthday, I, I started actually like having, you know, I'm getting explicit here, but you know, the point was once I started being close with, um, alternative approaches to masculinity. It's not like I hadn't met a gay man prior to prior to that, but like I I hadn't really engaged with the idea that I could be a different kind of guy. I really thought of myself as this sort of straight man who, especially in the years leading up to to that transformation, was spending a lot of time trying to be a straight man and going like, well, I guess the only way to self actualize is to be kind of a dick. And, you know, that was something that there was a lot of templates for. I mean, people, not just like pickup artist stuff, even among ostensibly sensitive dudes, you have this this lack of interrogation of what it really means to be a straight man. And, you know, that, I guess that's where I would... I or would, even just I seeing would, masculinity as this spectrum of things. That it can, oh, yeah. It's heterosexuality is, is, you know, just like even like leaving out like queer sexuality, like, the, like this masculinity can be just a lot of different things. And yeah. they don't all have to be embarrassing. And a lot of things that are, <laughs> that, that can be negative, but masculinity don't have to be, you know? No, absolutely. And, and things to extremes and not thinking them through is kind of the problem. And I think that's, you know, yes. you know getting into Midnight Vultures that is kind of like what it's trying to tell you. No, you're right. And I, I should go back and listen to it again with I post this conversation because you are crystallizing a lot of the stuff that I like about the album, but hadn't necessarily articulated. And and yeah, I mean, I remember, you know, one of the first celebrity crushes I had was oddly not Beck, but Roger Joseph Manning Jr. I thought he looked just I was still in denial about the fact that I was like actually attracted to men, but I used to just like gaze at pictures of him circa midnight vultures when he was like wearing these bell bottom jeans and would like put on a cape and had this long girlish hair. And was were just, you interpreting this at the time as kind of like more like, Oh, I wish I could be this guy. Um, you know, when you're 13, 14, it's all mixed together. If you're queer, you know, you're, you, you are trying to figure out, what kind of man you want to be and what kind of man you want to be with, even if you're not articulating it quite so concretely, that's how you don't know. Again, you have an unstable self that's getting formed. So when it came to Roger, who maybe he'll listen to this, who knows? Um, and we can finally uh, have our, our long established uh, love um, come together. But um, he, he was somebody who I just thought aesthetically was very pleasing and when you're especially coming up in the late 90s, you know, this peak homophobic period, um, the idea of a young boy um, appreciating on an aesthetic level uh, just the visuals of a man who you find attractive, that's something that, I mean, that was the reason I was closeted for, you know, my whole life up until I was in my early 30s was at that period, 
I wouldn't let myself think that because that would have been giving myself the opportunity to get further bullied. You know, if I, if I uttered a word even to myself, uh, that alluded to me being, you know, being gay, being queer or whatever, it, it would have been uh, a defeat. It would have been like, oh, well, the bullies were right about me and, because being gay is bad. And if I'm gay, that must mean I'm bad. So I have to like, you know, man up and be something else. And, you know, when it came to Beck and his coterie, they just seemed so unconcerned with that. I mean, th- there was... There was there was no um, macho posturing. There was a lot of posturing. Don't get me wrong, a whole lot of posturing. And even if it was macho, it, it was still there was that distance from machismo. Oh, it was wait, never a like humor about it. A sense of humor about it. It was never like the only way to be a man is to be a, a, a jerk. Um, th- there was none of the uh, raw aggression that a lot of music around then had. A lot of the really popular music that the boys who were bullying me were into. Um, and, you know, it, Beck was an outlet, for, an escape from that. And, you know, and so was so was Pavement. I mean, Pavement, it's it's a different set of explorations of masculinity, yeah. but I, mean, I think a there's lot a lot of, the of that music in there. of that period uh, is kind of like offering like, listen, you can just be a guy, you can be a dude, but you don't have to be a <laughs> dude about it. Right. Well, a lot of indie music, sure. The mainstream music, very much not that for the most part. Well, Beck was sort of sort of mainstream, sort of indie at the same time. But like, you know, I mean, and that that dates back even pre that period. I mean, I think about, um, you know, noted, you know, fellow bisexual icon, uh, Michael Stipe, you know, I mean, Stipe is is a classic example of somebody who was very into being a man without being uh, the kind of man that you are all too used to and afraid of. Um, and I love that lineage in music and just talking about it now, I hadn't really put together just how much of the music I liked, especially in my youth really fell into that, that set of categories, but it, it did and, and continues to do so. coming out or embracing oh yeah oh that's really interesting there were certainly songs that um i'd enjoyed but hadn't felt like they were mine in some level or like you know like (laughs) it's of course there's funny things where like there are songs that are thought of as iconically queer but were actually made by you know mostly straight people so like you know i think of right after i came out 
I, I happened to be somewhere and the radio was playing and uh, Depeche Mode's Just Can't Get Enough came on. And I was like, oh, I can have a different relationship with this song now. Like this is a song that's been embraced by a lot of queer men for decades. And like maybe maybe this can belong to me as well. Or I, I remember in that same week, I, I may have also just been on the radio again, I, I heard uh, Express Yourself, the Madonna song, which is of course a totally iconic uh, gay club hit. Um, and again, I was hearing that song and going, maybe I have some purchase on this. You know, maybe this is not something that's alien to me in my experience. Um, and you know, the, the image I had when I came out was, um, there's this alternate universe to, you know, loop it back to X-Men and everything. There's, <laughs> there's this alternate universe where I wasn't bullied and decided that I was gay. Um, not, I think in both of these universes, I went from one to one extreme or another. And then I like to think that when I came out as bi, it was sort of like synthesizing the two universes. And now we had both gay Abe and straight Abe occupying one body. And it was really like emotional to meet gay Abe, you know, to meet this person who could really enjoy a lot of, uh, life in a way that I wasn't. And uh, that I hadn't been able to. And music was a big part of that. I mean, music is a huge part of the queer experience. Um, and uh, for reasons that I couldn't necessarily tell you, because I'm not enough of an expert on queer culture, it was not what I was raised in. But from my you know, knowledge of it, obviously, when you gravitate towards a song that has this communal aspect where it's like, okay, this is what people in this world listen to. It can be really powerful. Now, do you feel like you a know, song like express yourself, like you're just kind of, uh, you're, you've almost been like, you've psychologically given yourself an invitation to that club. Yeah, exactly. You're like, I'm listening to it. I'm like, okay. When she's saying like, are you ready girls? She's talking to me, you know? And that means I can start dancing when I, when she gives the cue and the beat drops. And, um, you know, I'm trying to think of other, there are like, as queer music, you know, whatever queer music is, as the, 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 the music that is listened to by queer men has evolved over the years and now is something that I, I don't know as much of, um, you know, it's not something that I necessarily engage with as it's happening contemporaneously, but I very often think about music from the past that has been associated with queer men and sort of trying to figure out where I fit with that. There are like a few um, really sort of interesting, very queer artists who have made music that I've really gravitated to in the past decade. But, you know, the, the one I think of is Sean, S-S-I-O-N, you know, um, Psy Chic, the, the song that um, that I think it's a they. I, I don't remember what their pronouns are, but um, they recorded this song and I heard it while I still thought I was straight, but was with, um, I was at the time dating a woman. Well, I don't need a hug. Getting the most important thing. The the number one touch point with queer music and sort of queer performance during these years when I thought 
I was straight, but like would have these really resonant moments with it was Kiki and Herb, um, the, the, the drag cabaret duo, uh, or a drag cabaret is kind of too limiting for what they are. Um, but you know, Justin Vivian Bond and Kenny Melman would make this music where they would take popular songs or at least pre-existing songs and reinterpret them as these, these characters who were very much in this sort of queer downtown scene mold. And I mean, I remember I, I interviewed um, or I produced an interview with, with Justin Bond um, uh, in 2009 when I was producing a TV show for, for New York One. We profiled them. And um, I went to their apartment to just shoot some B-roll and like, some, excuse me, some photos. And this is 2009, so it's still many years before I came out. And I remember having this conversation with Justin um, just about this, that, and the other thing. I mean, it was mostly just me listening to them tell stories and uh, especially stories about like growing up and being bullied and being queer and whatever. And I remember going back to the the little New York one car from the carpool that I'd picked up to go drive there. And I just like started crying uncontrollably. Like I, I couldn't even express what was happening, but I just, there was some part of me that I was still had, you know, put away in a dungeon somewhere. And every once in a while in moments like that, I'd sort of hear him calling to me and I'd, I'd get very emotional about it. And you know, Kiki and Herb was a huge part of that journey. I mean, I remember when I came out, I wrote an email to Justin just saying like, you know, that happened to me, that that encounter in 2009. You know, I had their email address. And I figured, why not? Um, but, you know, that that music was about as close as I got to really engaging with, with the queer music scene. And, um, but I really engaged with that. I mean, we could do a whole pod just me talking about my thoughts on Kiki and Herb, but uh, I, I won't bore you. Once upon a time, there was a tavern Well, we used to raise a glass or two We'd sit and drink and while away the hours And dream of all the things that we would do